So we're continuing in our study called the gifts and the body. When we're dealing with the gifts in the body, we are talking about the church, that Jesus Christ died to save, and that the church is a brand new thing. It's not like anything that God has done previously. Previously, he'd been desiring to work with the world, the world through rejection of both sin that brought about the flood and also with the Tower of Babel that despised the idea of branching out and filling the whole earth. God confused all their languages and he decided to pull back and he decided to start with one person named Abram who was a pagan in the middle of what later became Babylon. Now God's grace is extensive. He's able to reach and use anybody. So in doing that, he calls him to go to a new place and began starting this nation of Israel that he works with. But eventually as time goes on, whether it's through idolatrous influence, whether it's through flat denial, whether it's just because they're lazy as all get out, who knows. But they got all wrapped up in all of this idolatry, deceived by demons and doctrines of demons, and eventually were put on the back burner because when the greatest revelation that God could possibly give them from himself and the Lord Jesus Christ came about, they opted to kill him rather than worship him. Now this created a great problem. And so as we learn from Romans 11, Israel has now been put aside for a time and a partial hardening is on them. And God has done a brand new thing with the church starting in Acts chapter 2. And what makes the church so unique is the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you read through the Old Testament, you will find that the Holy Spirit had been upon people, but never indwelling people. And this is one of the radical things about the new covenant that's so different It's the idea that the Spirit, God himself, will actually indwell every person. Now, I don't know about you, but that's super super cool and a little bit scary, kind of. I mean, God's with you all the time. Think back to the last time you sinned. God saw that. God was there. God knew what you were thinking. Like, ooh, right? Right. Trying to whittle us into more effective lives. One of the great blessings that has come through the indwelling Holy Spirit is the fact that when Jesus Christ conquered death, hell, and the grave, he ended up taking captive something, okay, and leading people into glory. But what he did was he turned around and he gave us gifts. You have a gift. People say, I don't have a gift. You have a gift. But you don't know me. I don't have a gift. Are you a believer in Christ? Yes, you have a gift, right? Everything that goes on in 1 Corinthians 12, every believer has a gift. It doesn't have to be the same gift. There can be a diversity of gifts. God likes diversity. God's the one who gave you your gift. Exercise your gift and do it all for the common good. Now, he stops his argument on gifts. And all of a sudden, in chapter 13, he introduces what? We all know it, love. How many of you had that as part of your wedding in some way? I'm curious. We did, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Did we have our bookmarks? Something like that? No? Was it not bookmarks? Or something? Okay. I don't We got married. I remember that. That's all I know. Right? <laughs> and I know when it is. So I know when to get that present, right? So there you go. <clears throat> That's something we commonly do with it. But what is the context surrounding chapter 13? What's it talking about? It's talking about gifts. It's talking about how you interact with one another based on your gifts. And if you make the mistake of interacting solely based on the focus of your gift and not love, your gift is worthless, useless, it's fleshly, it's good for nothing, it's dead on arrival. Absolutely. 
All gifts have to be administered in love. Doesn't matter what it is. Now, I want to give this quote. This is a long quote. I'm going to ask you to read along with me because it is so long. I'm going to tell you where I got it from. But a lot of times the question is, okay, it's about love. And if I have to be honest, I might not be that loving of a person. How do I become loving? What does that look like? How does this happen? We all want a checklist. We all just want to get, you know, beans, rice, taco meat. We're out the door. Yay. Right. And we know what we're doing that day. We, we've got it. But it's actually much more profound and actually much more simple than what we try to make it. But if God finds anything like himself in a human life, he must place it there. For he knows full well that such divine graces can never appear in a life apart from his own power. God has to do the work of grace in a person for them to have anything worth of the person in God's eyes. Thus, if he, by his very nature, demands the heavenly graces as the only possible basis for communion with his spirit-born child, he is not unreasonable in such a demand. For he does not expect these graces from the flesh, but has made full provision that they may be produced by the Spirit. What's he saying? When God makes some sort of asking of his church, and you may say, oh, good grief, I can't do that. What in the world is he calling me to? Number one, in and of yourself, that's a correct assessment. The flesh will never accomplish that. But what he also learning is that he will never ask anything of you that he has not already given to you of which to just let him do it. Obey, submit, if we want to call it surrender, whatever you want to call. The Bible calls it yielding. Yielding to the fact of what he wants to do. Yielding your life to this and letting him work with the graces that he's already infused. It says here, the fact, however... That he is designed uh, that they shall be the fruit of the Spirit changes the whole human responsibility. It is no longer something for the human strength to attempt, nor is it to be done by the human strength plus the help of the Spirit. In other words, it's not you working with the Spirit in order to make it happen. That's not how it happens. It is not something that man can do even with help. It is the fruit of the Spirit. I'm so glad it's not the fruit of Jeremy. That's rotten fruit. Nobody wants to eat that fruit. Nobody wants to see that fruit. Nobody wants to smell that fruit. True Christian character is produced in the believer, but not by the believer. Who's producing it? The Spirit. The Spirit is producing it. It's all right. You guys are still waking up. Doubtless, the Spirit employs every faculty of the believer's being to realize this priceless quality of life. Yet there is nothing in the believer of himself which could produce this result. There is not even a spark of these graces within the human nature which might be fanned into a fire. All must be produced in the heart and life by the Spirit. Thus, the new problem is naturally that of maintaining such a relationship to the Spirit as shall make it possible for him to accomplish continually what he came into the heart to do. Or let me say it in my terms. We just got to get out of his way and let the spirit be the spirit through us and not worry about self and not worry about self-pride, self-life, building us, being puffed up. We don't have to worry about that. 
That often is our worry and how we look in front of other people and whether or not people like this and that. We've got to get rid of all that and recognize, you know what? The Spirit of God indwells every person who is a believer in Christ. He wants to do a work. Let's just throw our hands up and get out of his way. Now, if you're curious, this came from a book called He That Is Spiritual by Lewis Sperry Chafer. It's an excellent book on the Christian life. If you've got your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. We're going to start there so that we can get a running start into the passage that we have set aside to Mark. And that will be verses 8 through 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1, we read, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now remember, speaking gift. Okay, the idea of prophecy or preaching is the idea, uh, that, that, that being one of the speaking gifts. And notice it's with the tongues, that's a spiritual gift, a sign gift that's been given of men and angels and do not have love. I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Everybody remember that example? Good, we don't need to go over it again. There it is. If I have the gift of prophecy, forgive me, that's where the speaking is, the preaching is. And know all mysteries and know all knowledge, there's another uh, speaking gift that's been given for knowledge. And if I have all faith, there's a serving gift. So as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if you remember what that word nothing means is absolutely zero. If love is not part of your gift, your gift has ceased to be spiritual. Everybody got me? Yes. Everybody looks asleep. Making sure. Okay. It's very, very important. Verse 3, and if I give all my possessions, giving is a spiritual gift, to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, if I become a martyr, but do not love, it profits me nothing. Exact same word as the end of verse 2. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Forgive me, I'm not keeping up with myself. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not, what is it, provoked, it doesn't anger easily, does not take into account a wrong suffered or keeps no records of wrongs, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And this is where I want you to get out your papers. The problem that we're going to have here when we move forward is that the idea of tongues is going to overcome our thinking as far as what Paul's really talking about in the entire chapter, and that is love. Now notice that he's telling you what love is not, what love is, and then with the beginning of verse 8, he wants to make you understand love has a permanent place. Whether you're exercising a spiritual gift or not, operating in love should hopefully be the default as a result of the Spirit working in us as we are constantly holding fast to the death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. It is springing from the love that God demonstrates in the cross that gives us the mindset of which to evaluate all other things. Let me give you an example. Ephesians 4.32 is an easy verse to remember, but it's a hard verse to institute, okay? Anybody know what that is? 
Be kind to one another, okay? So wait, wait, love is what? Love is kind, okay, okay. Paul wrote the same thing, kind of put it together. Tender-hearted, hmm. Okay, so now he's dealing with my heart, not just my actions. Here's where he gets you. Forgiving one another, okay? I'll forgive them how I want to. As God in Christ forgave you. Man, that tears down all the fences I wanted to put up, doesn't it? Now I've got to deal with actually employing that in my life. I now have to drop all reservations that I had previously and let God do it his way. Man, so when I'm sitting here thinking about the idea that love never fails, I've got to have a base place to constantly go back to, a foundational point. And that is the death and the resurrection of Christ always. How do I know that? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did he forgive me? He forgave me completely, yes. Was it unconditional forgiveness? Unconditional forgiveness is what I received. What was the condition for forgiveness? The blood of the lamb. There had to be a payment of blood in order to set you and I free. Free to me. Cost Jesus everything. Everybody see that? So that's important. So the cross and resurrection always ends up the basis of love. We can't forget this. Love never fails. It never stops. It never goes away. It never gives up. It will never become passe. Okay? Now we get into our section here. Oh, let me go back. Nope. There we go. But, and I left the italics in so that you would see them, okay? Look what it says. If there are gifts of prophecy, gift, yes, yes, all of you that are asleep, I will call you out. And if I need to say your name so that the internet replays it time after time, that's your choice. But if there are gifts of prophecy, speaking gift, yes? They will be done away. You need to mark that. Number one, the gift in question is prophecy. It's a speaking gift. The result is done away. Whether you want to underline, double underline, don't know how you want to deal with that. If there are tongues, they will cease. And if there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now, notice what you've got here. Yep. Let's see here. There we go. But if there is prophecy... Okay. Ugh, why is it not doing that? Speaking gift. Everybody see that? Notice what you have the requirement here. They will be done away. Skip tongues for a second. Go down to knowledge. Knowledge is also speaking gift. Okay. It will be, again, done away. But when you have tongues, tongues is a sign gift. Now, the interesting thing about this is this was the point of problem. This was the tension in Corinth. Everybody wanted to speak in tongues. Everybody was demonstrating. They were desiring the showy gifts. They were zealous uh, to manifest gifts in some great way. And, it's, and, and from everything else we read about Corinth, it's all very me-centered. This is why Paul's stressing the common good. It must be done for the benefit of the body. Okay? In tongues, we have the idea of they will 
cease. Now, all of these, whether it's this one, whether it's this one, whether it's this one, they're all doing in a future time that this is going to happen. Yes, everybody see that? Okay, so now, immediately we have some questions that arise from verse 8. Two questions. The very first one is, why is the wording regarding tongues different from that of prophecy and of knowledge? We need to understand that. The second one is, is when will this happen? That tends to be the real question that we've all got. If tongues are something that is valid today, how do we know it? If prophecy and knowledge are something that is valid today, does the Bible give us an inkling on how to understand this? Now remember, we're not doing everything about tongues in a big cluster of sermons here. We're following Paul as he develops the argument out of the text. Here's one thing that we know, is that if you still have your little note sheet in the front of your Bible that I asked you to put there about what we learn about tongues, one of the things we want to put down is tongues will cease. We, all, we obviously see that right here. Everybody see it? Tongues will cease. It's what we're told. Tongues, they will cease. So now our questions. Why is the wording different and when will this happen? Number one, the idea when you're dealing with done away done away for both prophecy and done away for both knowledge. They're both the same Greek word, katergeo, and it's the idea in a passive voice, meaning that someone causes them to come to an end. In both the situation of prophecy and knowledge, you are going to have somebody bring them. Anybody know who that somebody is? Jesus is going to bring them to the end. That's what's going to happen when they pass away. Now, this word pass away, we're going to, or done away, we're going to talk more about that here in just a second, but just stick with me on how this works out. However, when you deal with the word cease, cease is in something very interesting called the middle voice. If it's the passive voice, then somebody is doing the action to that subject. If it's the active voice, that subject is doing the action, right? There's a difference between you throwing a ball and having a ball thrown at you. Yes? Hope you have a glove, right? Kind of thing. One you want a glove for, the other one you might not necessarily need. The middle voice is different all by itself because it means to be stopped in and of themselves. That's why it's different. That's why there's a variation there. While prophecy is going to be done away at a point by somebody, and knowledge is going to be done away at a point by some way, tongues is completely different in the fact that of itself it will just stop. It will just cease. In fact, for the word done away here, some of the things I found was means to become inoperative. It'll be terminated at some point. However, cease is the idea to make themselves cease or to automatically cease in and of themselves or to be stilled in and of themselves. In other words, it's not that God's going to do anything to stop it at a point in time. They're just going to stop. Does everybody see the difference there? Yes, we with me? This is really important for the tongues argument. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes, love it. See, this is, this is my cheering section up here. Okay? Just so you know, good, good place to be. So. so notice, love never fails, but if there's prophecy and knowledge, both of these right here at a point in time. Okay, so I'm going to draw a little, little clock there. At a point in time. However, this ceasing is going to happen in and of itself. Maybe if we were to diagram it out and think about how we were going to look at it. Does this make sense to everybody? So knowing how this works, the grammar here is very, very important. Now, when will this happen? 
If we're wondering why the words are different, well, they're two different Greek words, but not only that, they got two different voices. One is the passive for done away. The other is the middle, meaning it'll cease in and of itself. That's fine. We've got that down, why they're different. When is the timing? Now, da-da-da-da-da-da, if you know anything about wanting to get in the Word of God, the context provides us with the answer to this question. Praise God that they're not just singular verses. It's one thing that drives me crazy about Proverbs. Sometimes I have a question about Proverbs. I'm like, this context doesn't go anywhere. I'll ask Jesus when I get in Theology 101 in heaven. So the context provides us with the answer to this question. What is the context? Look at your next verse. For, what is for? Anybody remember the technical word for this? It is a causal conjunction. He is going to give you an explanation for why he stated what he just stated. What did he just state? Prophecy will be done away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will be done away. For, here's the explanation. We know in part. Now I'm just going to do this. Fractionally. That's how we know. No gift of knowledge. Everybody see what he's doing? Back in, the, back in verse uh, 8, it's the idea of knowledge. And we prophesy in part, fractionally. Now stop for a second. Where's tongues? That's what he said was going to happen. Now, now don't say it's already gone in Paul's time. Paul spoke in tongues. Later in chapter 14, he's going to say, I wish you all spoke in tongues. He's actually going to tell you at the end of 14, don't despise the speaking of tongues. So he's going to tell you all these things in the next chapter. And notice, tongues, they will cease. That's future from Paul's perspective. So it hasn't happened yet. We can't say that the timing's already taken place. But notice that Paul doesn't bother to mention it again in order to further his argument. That's a pretty big deal. Because what he wants us to know about these gifts in relation to love doesn't necessarily include tongues in that part of the argument. He doesn't pick that up until chapter 14, verse 2, when he wants to bring it in. So notice, we know in part, right, gift of knowledge, the handwriting of a three-year-old, and or prophecy, so this is the idea of preaching, but when the perfect comes ah there's your timing the partial sorry i shouldn't have done it like that the partial will be guess what same word exact same greek word done away done away done away mark it so look what he's saying here you know in part star here prophesy in part star there but when the perfect comes the partial will be done away. Maybe this will help us. Part, part, partial. Done away. What does it all hinge upon? The perfect comes. Now, this leads us to a natural question, yes? The brand new question is, what is the perfect in verse 10? Now, Maxine Hibner sat across my desk for an hour and 20 minutes one day, and she said, Jeremy, what is the perfect? I never answered her. We talked about a lot of other things. Uh, she, actually, she, she actually brought me five books and left three of them. That's, that, was, that was a different kind of thing. So, The question is, what is the partial? 
You go through, you go back in our library. Please visit our library sometimes. There's all kinds of information back there to be had that's all profitable and good. What is a partial? You pull commentaries out, lay them out. You'll find this person believes this is, or sorry, the, the perfect. What is the perfect? What is the perfect? What is the perfect? All kinds of different things. Here's some things that they come up with. Number one is the completion of the New Testament. Well, obviously you need tongues and prophecy and knowledge. And then when the inspiration from the Holy Spirit to put down Holy Scripture is done, why would you need those things anymore? Well, that would also deduce the idea of that prophecy, preaching, is not needed today, and neither is the gift of knowledge. And I don't think that that floats. I don't think that's right. Another thing is, is is Paul in any way talking about the completion of God's revelation through his word in this passage? It doesn't have anything to do in this passage. It's a commonly held belief. Good scholars and preachers and Bible teachers hold it. Great, I don't know that I agree with it. Some say the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the new heavens and the new earth is quite a long ways away. In fact, it's at least, from what I'm speculating, if I put my theological Geiger counter out there and figure out what it is, that's for earthquakes, that I can do with this. But anyway, some of you are going to get that, some of you won't. It's like, does he know what he's talking about? The answer is no, okay? But when you do that, you know that it's at least 1,000 years plus seven years, plus about 35 days in there for the preparation of that time, if you've studied prophecy, going on to when we're going to have that happen. If the rapture took place today, and if it all kicked off with a peace treaty with the Antichrist in the Middle East today, if all that happened today, we still got a long time until that took place. Are you going to need prophecy and knowledge and tongues during the tribulation? Will you need it during, during the millennial reign of Christ? Okay, so that's probably not a good one. How about the growing up of the church? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is the one I held for the longest time. Why? Well, because I'm a lover of Ephesians. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is God's earthly goal for you and me as part of the body of Christ. Is this what he's talking about, about the perfect? Do you think? We don't know, do we? We're not for sure. Let me ask you the question. Uh, when are we going to be uh, everybody working together in the church, growing the body, built up in love perfectly? In glory, exactly. We need a divine changing to be glorified in order for that to happen. Because we don't do that perfectly now. So that's a problem. We still need those gifts in order to make this end result happen. Well, here's what I think. I think it deals with the rapture of the church. I think this is what it has to do with You say, well, well, why in the world is that? Well, it's interesting. The word perfect is the Greek word teleos. It's used all throughout the Bible. But having reached its end, finished, mature, complete, perfect, right? Consider all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kind, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let its steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be lacking in nothing. You may be complete in him is the idea of a maturation that takes place or a bringing to its end that it was intended to have. But it was very interesting in Thayer's lexicon. He actually says the perfect state of all things to be ushered in by the return of christ from heaven i thought it was interesting that he tacked that on there the idea of a completeness happening because when christ comes he makes it complete let me see here 
Some of the things I had written down for this. Uh, Reached to its end. Finished. Mature. Complete. Fully accomplished. Perfect. Being full grown. It comes from the Greek word telos, meaning end or goal. Reaching the goal in mind. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not a better goal for spirit and dwelt people to have than to be face to face with the Lord Jesus, never having to worry about the presence of sin ever again. And that's why I think this is what he's talking about there. He's talking about what is the end goal for Christians. The end goal for Christians is rapture. Why? Because, baby, it's all glory after that. That's a reason why. Because it's all wonderful and beautiful after that, and we don't have to worry about this world anymore. So notice, what is the done away, cease, done away? I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that tongues has probably ceased now. We're going to talk more about that as we move forward. But understanding the idea of what it is to be done away. I'm going to ask you, for the sake of time, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind to maybe write these in your margin to see this. One of the best ways to study a word is to start inside with the word itself and to work yourself out in concentric circles. Let me, let me kind of explain this real quick. If you're starting with the word that you want to deal with like done away, well, you would want to start with where you're dealing with it at hand. You'd want to look it up in maybe a Strong's. If you've got uh, your Bible app, literal word app, it's an excellent app. You just put your finger on there. They give you all kinds of wonderful information. It's really easy to use. But from then, you're going to back up and you're going to say, okay, what, how's it used in the sentence? How is it used in the paragraph? How is it used in this chapter? How is it used in this section? How is it used in this book? And then if you've got other books in that particular testament that are by the same author, you want to see how he uses it in other places. I think there's enough information in 1 Corinthians for us to see how this is particularly used. So let me give these to you. The first one is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many of you wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may done away, nullify, he may done away, nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Stop. Boast before God where? Can you imagine what it's going to be like at the great white throne judgment when Jesus opens the book of life and all the books that contain all the works that anybody's ever done? He's going to consult these books first. Do you realize that? If somebody's going to be able to give their offense in their unsavedness and their unregenerate state, he's going to go through and see if anything merits entrance to be with him forever. And he's going to find not only are they disqualified here by their works, nothing can justify of themselves, they don't have life. They're actually going to be double out. I don't know. What would you say there? Double accused, double guilty because they can't earn it for themselves and they didn't have the life that God freely gave. Nobody is going to be able to boast before him. I think this has an end times perspective. The next one, 1 Corinthians 2.6. If you'd write that just down in the margin, you can look at it later. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age. Notice that that is the present. Nor of the rulers of this age. The kings, the wise people, whoever that might be. Who are done away. Passing away. Exact same word. 
Notice that they're saying in this time, they may seem wise. They may be ruling in this time. In the time to come, they have no ground. They're going to be gone, taken out, inoperative. They will no longer have a position. How about this one? 1 Corinthians 6, 12. I can't remember where this stops. Just follow along. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach. Actually, this should be like this, because this was a Corinthian saying. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food. For the food, You only live once is the kind of byline for the culture at that time, right? Food's for the stomach, and stomach is for... Like everybody's going to Golden Corral in Corinth, right? But God will, here it is, do away with both of them. Done away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. It ends in verse 14 here. Now, God is not only, and here's the way you know it has an end times context. God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Notice he's bringing it to a future time. What is that big resurrection time in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul tells them about? It's the rapture of the church. The next one, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished, done away all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be done away is death. Does everybody see that this has end times in mind? Yes? I'm really trying to prove a point here. Stick with me. Come on. Thank you. You're all liars. Um, Just kidding. (laughs) Man, that's harsh. So each one of these uses carries an end times perspective. It's all in an end times context. That's how Paul chooses to use that particular word all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. So I think it's safe to conclude that he's talking about the goal, the end, the full maturation, the growthness of the church ending in the rapture. That is the goal. That is the perfect. Now, notice he's going to give you some examples. Example number one of what he's talking about. When I was a child, everybody see the the little language here? When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child right? For we know in part, in other words, it's fractional. We know from children right now, they don't have a grand knowledge of everything. This is why we teach them and train them so that when they grow up, they have a full knowledge of situations. It's fractional. It's partial, okay? But notice the difference. When I became a man, when there was a full completion of the growth, When as a person he met his complete end, I did away with childish things. They weren't on the scene anymore. How about the next part? For, what's that called? Causal conjunction. Here's an explanation, another one. For example number two. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Stop. When? Now present he's telling us in the present we're only seeing partially we're only seeing fractionally now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now pause face to face with who everybody see that now it's just like you're looking in a mirror it's kind of foggy you're not really seeing it all but there's going to come a time when you see him clearly Look what it says. Now, 
present, I know in part. Didn't he already say that? Yeah, he did, partially. But then, same then as what he's referring to now. I will know, using the gift of knowledge, fully, just as, and here's what that means, okay? In the same way, okay? But then, in the future, when he's talking about when he sees face to face, I will know fully, just as I also have been past, and I believe that's perfect, fully known who perfectly past tense fully knows paul christ notice what he's saying but then i will know fully i'm going to come to this fullness that there is in the same way that i have already been fully known does everybody see this end times rapture perspective here that he's just going over with his examples you can look at the usage of the word done away all throughout the text but all of his examples here are given are pointing in the same way What's he saying? He's saying ultimately there's going to come a time when you don't need love or you don't need gifts for those things. You will always have love. Love is the permanence that never goes away. So tongues are going to stop in and of themselves. Prophecy is going to pass away at some point. Knowledge is going to go away at some point because those things are only done partially right now, not mentioning tongues again. But there's going to come a time in the future when it's all going to be fully known as Paul is fully known. As he is fully known by the Lord, then he will fully known. I can't think of anything more than that than glorification when we have glorified bodies we're given at the rapture to stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus. I can't think of anything more than that. Don't let that issue with gifts and how it affects our understanding of tongues stop you from seeing his point. His point is this, but now faith, hope, love. Abide these things. The word abide, minnow, remain. It's the same idea that that, uh, Jesus uses in John 15. Right now, faith, hope, and love will always exist in this present time, even if you're not exercising your gift. In other words, when you feel inadequate about your gift, when you don't know about your gift, some some of, I've actually been told that some of you are scared to death to fill out your thing about your gift. If that's true, come see me. Set up an appointment with me. I'll walk you through it. I don't mind. It's very important that we understand what everybody believes that their spiritual gifts are so that everybody can be serving effectively. Our goal is to be unlike any other church where we're actually active and building up the body of Christ the way that he has prescribed us and gifted us to do so. Now, here's what's interesting. Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because love never what? What did it say at the beginning of eight? Fails. It never fails. Here's an interesting. Do you know at some point you're not going to need faith and hope anymore? Do you realize that? Look at this. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. Will you need faith in the rapture to come? No, you're going to see him fully. You don't need faith anymore. You say, here it is. Everything that I was believing unto, here it is. How about the idea of hope? For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. You say, what? Did he say Bob Hope? No. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Why? Because you see it. For who hopes for what he already sees? Will you already see the face of the Lord Jesus at the rapture? So notice, there come a time when hope's not even on the radar anymore. What does remain? 
what does remain. Go ahead and do this because it just feels real fun to do it. You ready? There we go. Love. There you go. Love will remain. Right? There we go. Great. <laughs> so, should have seen those eyebrows pop up. That was good. Love is what remains. Don't lose sight of that. We can be critical in, in unfolding the text, and we should handle the text that way. If that's not the way you study Scripture, I encourage you to get involved. And if you need some help doing it like that, come see me, and I will help you learn what it is to mark up the text like that. And I'm so thankful we have a tool now that lets us kind of do that together. But don't lose the fact of the sight that love is going to be the constant. If love is going to be the constant, why not just want love to be the default? Does that make sense? If Grace Bible Church needs to be known as anything, they don't need to be known as, man, they really have the gift of knowledge over there. They really have the gift of healing over there. They really have the gift of giving over there. They really have discerning of spirits over there. No, Grace Bible Church is a place that radiates the love of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's never going to pass away. It's never going to fail. And whether I'm doing a spiritual job of exercising my spiritual gift, I hope I at least love you. I hope we can at least love one another. That's what Paul's getting at. Your spiritual gifts are going to come and go. Guess what? Love is the precedent. Love is permanent. Love never fails. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the mercy that comes through knowing that we have the love of Christ, that you've given us everything we need to demonstrate the love of Christ. And God, you desire us, you call us and command us to be loving to be patient, to be kind, to bear burdens with one another, to never be about self, to not keep records of wrongs, to never rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice along with in partnership with the truth, to bear all things, to hope all things, to believe all things. Father, love never fails. Your love for us never fails. And you would never ask anything of us that you have not already supplied. Lord, our spiritual gifts are important. You've given them to us. We need to know what they are. We need to be exercising them in the body for the betterment of the body, the common good of the body. But let us never forsake love. Father, if we're sitting here today and we're saying, you know what, I'm just not loving. That's okay. I I'm not either, especially not all the time. How desperately we need to reflect upon the demonstration of your love and ask you, Lord Jesus, make loving others a reality in my life. Love them through me, please. And get out of the Spirit's way. Let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. Thank you, Jesus, that you've obviously blessed us abundantly beyond what we could possibly understand. And you are such a good and gracious God. I pray that you are just pleased today in worship by where our hearts are in response to the Word of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.